Hi, and welcome to Intercom on Product. With myself, Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom, and Paul Adams, who's our Senior Vice President of Product. Over the time we've worked together, Paul and I have had countless conversations about things like how to run a product org at scale, how to balance customer feedback on your product roadmap, how to spread a product-first mentality throughout a company, how to maintain design excellence in a fast-growing R&D team, and so much more. In this series, we're going to begin sharing some of these discussions with you on a regular basis, covering everything from industry trends, what's hot right now, all the way through to things like how are we embracing the rise of automation. So if you're a designer, product manager, engineer, researcher, or anything in between, we think you'll find these conversations really valuable. You can subscribe to Intercom on Product on iTunes, you can stream it on Spotify, or even just grab the RSS feed in your player of choice. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Intercom on Product, episode 16. I'm joined once again by Mr. Paul Adams. Paul, how are you? I'm good, Des. Thanks. How are you? Uh, very well, thank you. And this is our first episode of 2022. A quick apology to all of our listeners. We know that we should have a better cadence for this. The actual problem is that we have also jobs. And uh, that's what kind of gets in our way, or at least it gets in my way. What's your excuse, Paul? Uh, mine's the same as yours. Okay, okay, I sure. just work on my job most of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But speaking of, I guess uh, one of the reasons folks perhaps find the podcast interesting at times is we often just talk about what we've been working on. One of the things we sat down to do at the very end of last year was plan out 2022, as would any organization that ships software, I'm sure. And I think an area we paid a lot of attention to was just like our own internal rate of productivity efficiency. And we kicked off a project to evaluate everything, every process, every step, every part of how software goes from idea through to like live production software that our users use and enjoy. We learned a lot. Paul, what did we exactly do and how could people learn from it? Yeah, I think what we did was, uh, for us, massively insightful. Uh, more insightful maybe than, than we even realized going into it. Uh, it probably started um, maybe around October last year, where myself and Dara, you know, I run a product team, Dara runs an engineering team. Uh, myself and Dara, I, I guess we're looking at how we work and we're hearing a lot of feedback bubbling up from some of our people and teams that we were getting slower. And uh, both Darren and I, ha, as you have, Des, like an obsession with moving fast and speed and efficiency. And so when you hear from your from some of your best people, you're moving slower than you used to. That's not good news. And, you know, we, we believe that if you become satisfied with how fast you're moving in terms of shipping high quality product customers, then you're entering the world of complacency and then you're uh, just going to kind of spiral downwards. So what we did is we surveyed some of our best people and in, in, in other different managers and leaders and so on in the, in the product and engineering org, surveyed them, and they gave us amazing feedback. And then we talked to them directly one-to-one to follow up and understand the nuances and the details, pulled all those things into themes. Uh, we did this very fast, by the way. Like We did all this in a small number of weeks end-to-end, pulled it all into a small number of themes, understood where and how we could change, looked at our process, looked at our culture, and made some really sharp, incisive changes to how we work. And it's been received really well. You know, people were just fully energized by the whole thing. And it's early days, you know, it was only last October that we started this. and We're into the new year, but so far so good. Just um, to m- modulate one piece out, like the, the stuff we heard, like it wasn't like work from home, it wasn't pandemic. It was like, it was stuff that would have been true if everyone was in the same room, let alone same office or whatever, right? Yeah, and you have to be 
very open-minded, especially Dara and I as leaders and our direct team of leaders, like senior leaders, you know, some of this cut deep, like it hurt, it hurt to read it, uh, knowing that we're kind of in charge and, and accountable for how, how the product and engineering team work at Intercom. So it was some of the things that, 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 you know, cut deep, like I said, so things like people being afraid to make some decisions, afraid to fail, you know, there's like a, an aversion to taking risks. And so people were doing things in a more safe way. And that was a, some cultural components to that. And that's not what we want at all, you know, or we have a culture here where it's highly collaborative. People tend to be very thoughtful of one another and empathetic and kind. And that can lead to kind of design by committee at the worst times. You know, we need to have everyone, everyone's opinion needs to be included. And that's not necessarily what anyone wants. Other stuff where people were following our process kind of blindly. And so they were like reading, you know, reading the kind of principles we have and understanding, you know, what they are and then kind of like a little bit of cargo culting. And some of our people mentioned cargo culting, you know, this idea that you follow the process blindly without really thinking critically about whether or not it's the best way to work or the fastest way to work and so on. And then things like road mapping took too, was taking too long, too much work, a bit of work, work. So there's actually a desire for more top-down leadership. You know, so Intercom, we kind of operate with a very autonomous model of teams and groups of teams, but they were looking for a bit more direction from some leaders like myself and yourself on high-level strategy. Yeah, stuff like that. That, like, I mean, obviously, I, I read the reports as well. Um, for me, like, the, the two thoughts occurred. Like, w- one was... Um, could we have noticed this earlier or like, like to some degree, like let's say um, some of these things, for example, like people blindly following the process, like culturally nothing grows out of a vacuum. That was probably a reaction to like a project that went wrong and somebody came into the room like you or me and said something along the lines of, we didn't follow the process. That's why this didn't work out. Right. And like that got like translated into, if you don't follow the process, that'll be cited as the reason why the project didn't work. Or, or yeah. like why things didn't work well. Like, has it made you more reflective? It certainly has for me. Has it made you more reflective on, on how, where, uh, why you engage in things such that we don't start new on-ramps onto new problems in the future? Yeah, it, it definitely did. I think one thing it brought into sharp focus for us was we are a very principle-based company and we have principles in the product and engineering team We've three principles, and as an end result of this project, added a fourth. We've three principles, and then below that, we've process. And the process is basically a, a bunch of things to do to enact the principles. And principles, by definition, are guidelines. Like they're not rules. Like principles are not rules. But I think just because of the way we evolved the company and we were growing fast, adding people, and the principles are quite strong, people like them a lot. That led to kind of assuming they were rules versus guidelines and people didn't want to skip steps in the process. And so I think as a result, we've managed to say to people, hey, it's the principles that matter, but yet they're guidelines, not rules. And hey, after that, it's outcomes. You know, we shipped a great product to a high quality uh, efficiently and its customers value it. It's been used, all, all that good stuff. And the other thing that I was, I guess I want to just say like, proud of like i mean one of our core beliefs i think is like uh, and it's a, it's a national intercom wide sort of value is that we are confident yet humble i think th- this podcast might be an example of it in that like 
on one hand, here we are saying, here's something you should all do. On the other hand, we're humble enough to say, here's a lot of absolute mistakes we made uh, that were clarified to us. The piece I was happy with was that we actually got the like, you know, the sharp end of the stick handed back to us from the team, which was really valuable. I think you have to have the right type of culture that lets people openly criticize a process or a person or a leadership style and say, hey, Paul, hey, Des, you need to take a stronger opinion here. You can't just leave that up to us. Or, hey, this process that you've designed has turned into like a box checking, like TPS report that no one ever does and no one understands or whatever. And I think it was definitely like bruising to hear pieces of this. But you'd much rather take those bruises than have everyone either afraid to say it or afraid to offer it or like uh, saying it to each other, but just not saying it to you. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Uh, one of the other things actually that was not, not necessarily surprising to me, but definitely a moment of like reflection was going into this, you know, we, we shipped 150 customer facing changes last year. It's not like, you know, productivity has ground to a halt and it's just decision making you know, circular conversation after circular conversation. We're actually like good, I think. And, yeah. and by a lot of people's standards, very good. You know, 150 things in a calendar year is obviously something to be proud of. But we were hearing that from the, the teams, the people on the teams themselves, the people working directly on the projects uh, who are obviously, you know, at the front line of, of building great software for, for our customers. And so people just saying, especially who've been here a long time, hey, we're just, things are creeping in as we scale and so what was really good for me as well was when we replayed this back to the org, back to other people and said, hey, here we've surveyed people, we've done interviews, here's what we've heard. And the message was, look, momentum is really important. Momentum builds momentum. And we are simply less efficient than we used to be. And we think we can improve here. People love, most, for the most part, loved that. They were like, yes, more of this. This was like, Oh, thank you. I don't. I shouldn't have all these meetings that I think aren't very useful anyway. I should skip all these steps that I thought I had to do. Like people love that message, and so the I think the the two way vulnerability and the transparency of thought. It's like just hey, here's what we've heard. Here's what we think. Here's what we think we should do on both sides, from our people, from us. I think that led to the like a symbiotic like positivity and better ways of working as a result. Absolutely. Obviously, it's really useful for like the employee engagement. Like people want to believe in the process and they want to believe in like how they're building software. They want to believe that like literally what they're doing dramatically affects the outcome of the business. And I think that's something like large, large companies, like I'm talking like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employee companies feel, especially ones where they have a kind of market monopoly. It's hard to feel if you're working on a feature upon a feature upon a feature and it doesn't really matter whether it ships or not. It's really, really hard to stay engaged and believe the work matters. I think like a company is our size. Everything you do when you're doing it well actually does move figures in our balance sheet. Like we're either increasing upsell or decreasing churn or increasing attractiveness of the project or whatever. So people really know that the work can have impact. That's what makes it kind of more frustrating if you feel that like you're being in some way chained down or encumbered or like there's obstacles to you having the most impact. So I think that's really where we can, you can, any company I think can tap into like extra energy or engagement from, from the team is to simply say, hey, we want everyone here to be as effective as they can be. And then having the honest conversation with everyone saying like, how are we messing this up for you? Like what would make you better? Uh, what would make this job more enjoyable for you? It's something I think every startup can always learn more from is just understanding most of the time these engineers, designers, and PMs you spent so long hiring and, and empowering and setting up they 
will always see opportunity where your company can improve, where you can get better at producing better software faster. And you just need to make sure that you're like, you know, relentless about listening to them in a sense, like the earning from them. I think every company can benefit from that. For us, like a core driver for this was the sense of speed. I think we both, myself and you, Paul, at the very least, but I think I'd argue all 300 folks in R&D or whatever, would all agree speed is just a, it's a huge ingredient of a successful startup. It's a huge reason people like working in the intercom. It's important beyond the product team in that like the speed of R&D is a, at the very least affected by the speed of, say, our surrounding functions, whether that's finance for giving us headcount or whether that's marketing for bringing our stuff to market. Like speed is just, it's like a first class citizen in intercom, but I think it should be in every single company. You need to understand that like most of the time, the ability to move and improve, to iterate and innovate is actually a core asset of a company and if you can outperform your competitors it becomes a core competitive asset something you can actually win on how do you think it affects us or how do you think it affects just SaaS companies in general yeah I, I often say internally here we are in a race and I mean it very literally we are literally in a race and I think almost every single person listening to this who's in a, a product or engineering team or indeed any any kind of technology company you're almost certainly in a race too and what I mean by that is technology evolves and changes and moves. And we see speed of execution as a critical, indirect competitive advantage. But it is a very clear competitive advantage. And, and you know, again, unless you have some kind of big moat, like a big data moat or, you know, maybe a breadth of a product that's just really, it's going to take literally years to copy. Your current differentiation, you know, why you're different and better, why customers should choose you over some other competing tool or product is only as durable and sustainable as your ability to improve it faster than others can copy it. And so if you have any kind of good product market fit, you will get copied. And once you get copied, you know, there's no reason to pick you over other companies. And so you're in this race, you know, who, who's kind of going to be able to move fastest? Hence, the speed of execution, we, we think, is actually a competitive advantage, or, or if we get it wrong, disadvantage. So just to play that out for a sec, so let's say me and you start a new startup and let's say we do, oh, like, let's say uh, employee performance management software or something. I'm just picking some random SaaS yeah. tool that we might use. And let's say we have a beautiful UI. We have some sort of fancy command K style action menu switcher. We have a mobile app. We integrate beautifully with Slack, blah, blah, blah. You're saying, and I think and I agree with you, but just I'm reframing it so that it can be understood by all, all the listeners, I guess. No matter how cool this is, you can still basically right-click view source, work out what we're doing. It's all just basically, you know, data going into a database and coming back out in a different form with some different like transposition happening to it. If somebody really likes it, they can do it. And if right after launch, our ability to to move and improve is slower than our competitor, whatever our advantage is, let's say we're 10x better than the next HR performance conversation tool, doesn't really matter. It'll erode because they're going to outpace us. So even, even if they're like 10 miles behind us, they're moving twice as fast, they'll overtake us at some point. Now, you know, the only sort of reasonable counter argument is, well, what if we're always people with the better ideas? I think that argument, it, you know, that kind of like turns into like what I'd call like the audio argument, right? Like, well, we had the better idea. Sure, we were number two forever and ultimately didn't work out, but we had the better <laughs> idea. You, you know, I think you become like one of those like taste setters, but you can never actually like commercially capitalize on any of anything you've actually contributed. Yeah, uh, which I think is, is the dangerous thing. So I think like, unless you're like 
it's funny, I'm going to name two companies and I'll just say as a side note, I know both of these companies obsess about speed, even though I'm about to say that they don't have to as much. Like say, for example, it's hard to right click and copy Stripe because mm-hmm. they have agreements with banks and they have agreements with all sorts of like uh, behind the scenes people. It's not like you can't just sit down with a Rails uh, install and a bit of fancy UI and start charging credit cards. You have to put on a suit and go talk to some banks or whatever. Yeah. Um, so something you can do entirely with a text editor in a browser is like, say, Figma, where, yes, everything they do is possible to understand, but there's so much of it that's done to such a high degree of execution. It's a very complicated, massive piece of fantastic software. So even if you decided to copy it, you could be a long time working on that before you actually catch up with them. And then, as I said separately, in both cases, I know that they both maniacally improved their product at pace anyway. So I, I think... Even in the cases for the folks who you might argue don't need to worry about it too much, they seem to worry about it too. So I do think no matter what the industry really, speed is the thing. There are a couple of cases, like you said, if you have like some insane data moat or some like maybe like if you have a massive community that's going to go to your place, say like Reddit or something like that, mm-hmm. where everyone's there because everyone's there. I think you don't need to worry about like the next Reddit won't be based around better technology in a sense. Yeah. It'll be like it'll be some, some sort of fashion shift will, will happen. But I think for the rest of us building like B2B or B2C SaaS tools, yeah, speed actually matters a whole bunch. It's a huge competitive advantage. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Maybe we'll talk for a sec about what does it feel like when like you've worked, I'm not going to name names for once, even though I've definitely criticized your former employers on previous <laughs> <laughs> But uh, you've worked in a breadth of organizations. Uh, but more importantly, let, let me say this. You've worked in lots of different teams and areas. You've worked in like the fast parts of you know Facebook or Google, and you've probably worked in parts that weren't so fast as well. What does it feel like when speed isn't there? Uh, I, I want to go back to is... Um this idea that momentum builds momentum. And so like, just to dig into that for a second, like, you know, momentum, this is a, like, you know, pseudoscience here. Momentum is velocity times mass. So velocity is, you know, how fast a company can execute their product roadmap and then in a specific direction. So like, i.e. their strategy. So, you know, momentum is like velocity, how fast we execute the actual strategy in a direction. It's not like it's randomly shipping loads of random stuff. Some of my former employers tended to do that a little bit of that. Yeah. Said ship, it was just random. And mass is how big the team is. So, you know, this really applies to small teams as much as it does to big teams. Whether you're a five person 
team or a 50 person team or a 500 person team. It's the same stuff. And the momentum builds momentum. So when you have momentum, you can feel it. Like it's, it's visceral, you know, there's like decisions get made fast and progress gets made and you can literally feel it in my experience. And when you have it, it's easier to maintain it. It's like a car kind of going up to a you know, set of traffic lights. It's like green, green lights all the way, you know, keep going, green, 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 you just keep going. And if the, if the light goes amber, turns red, you slow down, oh, shit, well now it's harder to actually get going again. So that's why we obsess about it too. Cause we know that if the momentum slows down, it's harder to speed up again. And then the, the other orgs in the company feel it too. So like, our sales team's momentum to some degree is dependent on our R&D momentum. In other words, you know, if we keep shipping product updates and things that customers value and want and need, hey, the sales team can, can, can increase their momentum off the back of that too. So you get like these nice feedback loops with the rest of the company that reinforce the, the feeling that you're making progress fast. And then obviously like the opposite can happen. And so like to make this like maybe a bit more practical for people, you know, one of the things that we've said to people is internally is to do things like ask momentum building questions. So this is one way you can kind of test whether or not you have speed. Things like, you know, why are we waiting for this person to come back from holidays before we make this decision? Like, like we could make it now and then fill them in when we get back. Like, why are we blocked? What are we going to do to unblock ourselves? Why are we waiting? You know, who's going to make this decision? When are they going to make it? What's the minimum we should do in order to learn, unblock progress, etc.? So there's a whole bunch of things. And when people ask these questions in meetings and working sessions and one-to-ones, you feel it. You just feel it. And I think part of that is culturally making it okay to ask those questions. Because like, like you've picked pretty easy questions there to ask, but there are like other momentum building questions that are, they can come across a bit thornier. Like, why isn't this live yet? Why didn't we look at this? Why are we waiting for? Why is that taking so long? Again, and like the extreme end of that will start to sound pretty like manic or like or harsh or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think like knowing when everyone in the group understands what the desired outcome is, then people know that when you're asking a question like why did we wait so long for that decision or or how do we unblock this quicker, they know what you're trying to do, which is not point fingers or play blame games. It's entirely you're trying to preserve or build momentum. And I think it's important that people understand that in the culture that like, hey, just something we care about a lot here in all cases is like, is our ability to move fast. And like any of these questions are just designed to try and protect or, or, or amplify that. You're correct in saying like, you know, I, I think the absence of momentum obviously builds the absence of momentum too, right? Uh, slowness is viral too. I think for the same reason you don't, you don't accelerate to a red light because you know what's the point of getting there quickly. I'm just going to end up waiting anyway. Mm-hmm. People, when they detect a bottleneck in the system, they slow down as they approach it. And then when they slow down, the car behind them slows down too, which means everyone starts to slow down once they realize that the operational cadence of the company is stepping back a bit. There's no point in being the one moving fast. There's literally no point. In fact, if anything, you're more likely to create problems by being the only fast cog in in the system or whatever. And I think that's something that people really need to watch out for. I think the easiest way that goes wrong, in my opinion, is like, especially if you take, say, the last year with the like, you know, near on trillion dollars of funding that's gone into startups, people are going to blow up headcounts. They're going to hire like, you know, 20, 30, 40 more people into a 20, 30, 40 person startup, or maybe put it another way. I'm seeing a lot of headcount plans that assume 100 or 200% headcount expansion. Yeah. Means like by the end of the year, the vast majority of your company will be new or your R&D org will be new. 
and they'll bring with them the cadence of the last place, which means if you go and, and good, like you go to some larger established company and you get all of their, like their, their senior talent out for all of the right reasons, they'll be working on a slower cadence. Like it's just, it's just a fact that like, if you're coming from a very large monopoly serving governments, primarily speed, isn't the same thing there. Now, relative to your peers, you might still be really fast, but relative to an early stage startup, you might be quite, quite slow. And if you come in and there's no like discussion of speed and prioritization of speed, you'll bring in the best of your expertise, which might say, hey, we should slow down a bit here and we should like be really rigorous in our documentation and we should be making sure we do full requirements gathering before we kick off a project. And before you know it, you'll see things start to slow down, which would be a fine strategy, as I said, in a different company, but not for like an early stage startup still kind of trying to enter a market or grow a market. What is the like best way, aside from like the feeling, the culture, the like lack of accelerating questions in meetings, are there figures you look to? Like, do you have a dashboard on the far side of all this that says, here's how I know if we're slowing down again? Yeah, I don't have a dashboard, but myself and Dara will look at key things for sure. And by the way, all of these are proxies. There's no one perfect measurement, you know, like the, the main one we look at, honestly, there's two that come to mind straight away. One is product changes. You know, like we have a webpage, intercom.com slash product changes or slash changes. And that is literally the product changes that are going out to our customers. And that's one. It's like, hey, are we shipping good product? And obviously quality matters here. You could, you know, ramp up output to a very poor standard, poor quality. That's not going to obviously help either. But the product changes is one because that kind of tells us at the end of the day, all that matters is that our customers are getting a better product. And so the changes is one thing. And if there's any gap in the changes, like, hey, like a few weeks go by and we haven't pushed a change live, we might start to ask, hey, just checking in, you know, is there something uh, awry here or, you know, uh, or that's one. Really big coming or whatever, like, yeah, there, exactly, there are yeah. reasons, but we just need to know, like. Yeah, a good example, actually, like, you know, here's, here's a, like, a little shameless plug while we're at it. Uh, we have an event in Q1 in a month or so, a month or two. March 23rd, you said, is it? That's right. That's what I said, exactly. <laughs> and at it, we're going to launch multiple new products. And like I said, you know, 150 changes last year. And, and yeah, we want to go more, faster, better. So we've got multiple new products coming. But that might mean that those teams, of course, have been working on them for a few months. And so those teams won't, have, won't be pushing things to the changes page. And that's fine. That is totally fine, of course. So, so again, these things are a proxy. None of them, none of them are perfect. Another one is every Friday here in the company, at the end of the day, Friday, we have a thing called show and tell where teams get up and demo their latest work. And it's, it's really informal and they just go, Hey, here's the latest for project X. And, you know, we've, we built this this week and so on. We've done this since the very, very early days, as you know, and it's an awesome tradition. And, and if that goes quiet, for a while, you're like, oh, why is show and tell quiet? You know, why are we not seeing much stuff? Yeah, like nothing's going publicly out and nothing's going privately out. We're, we're bottlenecked on something here. Yeah, yeah. And so we tend to look at those things. Now we do measure, you know, on the engineering side, we obviously measure the output of the engineering team. But a lot of those things, of course, you have to take with a grain of salt. You know, they're not necessarily the right measurements. Like, hey, more lines of code isn't necessarily better than course, yeah. your lines of code, of course. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and then and then lastly, I think we have like a, what we call high performing teams, which is like uh, part yeah. of like on a cycle basis. We actually uh, teams evaluate their own ability. Like they they ask questions like, "Are we clear on mission? Are we clear on strategy? Are we staffed properly? Do we have all the right people? Is running slow us down, etc." I think you're right in saying there's a, a reasonable set of proxy metrics that like 
any one of them is excusable, but collectively, if they all start to go red, the chances are something's gone wrong. And and, and honestly, it's it's very, very, in my experience, over the decade of Intercom anyway, it's very rarely like the team has just decided to slow down. It's something that's happened to slow yeah. down. And that's something could be they're working on too many different priorities. They're not staffed adequately. They have a really unclear vision or re- like we, we've given them a really vague direction. Like go do something in the blast space without actually being precise and helping them. In our experience, most people want to move fast. It's like it's liberating, it's freeing. It's like what lets you feel as a designer, as a PM, as an engineer, that you're actually having impact, that your work matters. No one really wants to go and like read Google Docs all day. Like they actually want to do the work and they want to see their stuff go live and they want to see customers use it and be delighted by it. That's the buzz. That's why you Mm -hmm. like that's why people want to work in software companies and specifically in startups, because the actual time between idea and customer delight is a lot shorter than it might be if you're working on like the the next version of Microsoft Word or something, you know? So I think like when you start with that assumption, what that means is you turn the like inquisition internal almost immediately, which is like, what have we not done to set this team up for success? Because we do believe they actually want success. Okay, we've kind of bounced around quite a bit here, but if we were to try and conclude, like, so I think a a parting idea for listeners in R&D, which is research and development, which is how the finance financiers refer to as the org that builds the software. You can tell we've grown up as a company. Product orgs, let's just say, product design engineering orgs. If you're in one of those orgs, something that's worth doing is asking everyone, what is the biggest obstacle to speed in the company? And you'll be be humble enough to accept that like they're probably right and it's probably your fault, especially yeah. if you're a leader of the org. I think inevitably you'll, you'll see changes that make sense. These might be changes to your process, removal of steps. These might be changes in terms of culture and saying, hey, it's it should be okay to ask the following or to push for the following. Or, hey, if your leader is not giving you enough clarity, it should be okay to request it. But there'll be like cultural changes, process changes. Sometimes there might be staffing changes in the sense of, hey, we're stuck on design. We always bottleneck on design. Until you get us more designers, we can't, you know, we can't get things through. Or it could be like we're stuck on like tech debt or we're still paying off the work that we did last year. And as a result, we can't build new stuff. We're still maintaining old stuff. But you, you might have changes there as well. And I think um, the higher level message is really like that. I think a hallmark of all the great startups that I'm aware of is their ability to move fast. And it's certainly what we aspire to be. I'm not at all saying that we're there. I'm just saying it's it's you know when we look at like who do we want to be when we grow up, the answer generally tends to be the startup start have moved the fastest and and have like made the most amount of changes to like the, the you know the ecosystem of tech in a sense and i think talking about speed as a first class citizen in the company is a huge part of making that clear to everyone and actually making it happen what would you add paul yeah i think that's all good stuff a couple of things come to mind one thing we didn't touch on earlier or didn't mention specifically in the company uh, and in the product and engineering teams, we sometimes talk about internet speed. And so the internet itself as this revolutionary technology, you know, one of the most transformational technologies and inventions ever created, moves at speed, like it evolves and develops and changes. And if you look back at how young it is, relatively speaking, it's evolved and changed so much. And if you're not operating at internet speed, in other words, the companies around you in your space are innovating and developing stuff and improving stuff faster than you are, you're losing the race and you're in the race. And so I think the the idea that, that we're all in a race together is very, very important, I think, to internalize uh, and to talk to your team about and, and have them internalize and embrace. Because like you said, it's 
it's way more fun and engaging if you're shipping stuff in the race. And I think to some degree, another part of internet speed is like, yes, obviously you're actually genuinely racing against your direct competitors because customers are going to make a choice about not just who's got the better product today, but who generally tends to have more stuff that makes their product better over time. Separate to that though, there's also um, the standards of the internet change pretty quickly as well. Like 10 years ago, you wouldn't expect every single B2B SaaS app to have features like, I don't know, liking, commenting, emoji, etc. Now you can't imagine shipping stuff without, you know, that's just an example of like default feature set is just expanding, right? People expect, you know, if, if you're trying to build an email product today, I'm just picking email because it's something everyone will get. I can tell you what your first year and a half worth of roadmap is. It's going to be the Android app, the iOS app, the iPad app, the Windows app, the Mac OS X app. The, then it's going to be all the basics email. And then after all that, you get to decide where do you want to differentiate or whatever. I think we are just seeing this relentless growth of like the standard expectations of customers. And that is a part of internet speed too. And if you fall behind that, so let's say you're in the project management space and you're looking at height and cycle and linear and all those and you see that they all have dark modes, they all have command case switchers, they're all designed for power users, they have all that fancy shit. And you're thinking, okay, we can't get that done, or by the time we get that done, it'll be 2024. You'll just find yourself relegated to being yesterday's technology tomorrow. And you've, you're basically coming in behind the internet, if you know what I mean. Like Stuff happens to the net, it becomes standard, it becomes best practices, and then a year later, you roll it out with it. And I think once, whether you like it or not, that becomes a part of your brand. You're the, you're the people who show up last, you know, with the thing everyone wants. And I think that like that's dangerous too. And that's the other side of internet speed is like, you're either like ahead of or at the curve, in which case you're always showing up on time with new stuff that people like expect, demand, love, etc. Or you're one of the companies that's just behind the pack. And generally speaking, I think you'll, you'll notice that in product first, you'll notice it in marketing second, you'll notice in sales third. And before you know it, like it, it'll show up in stock price or whatever it is, valuation, whatever the, the thing that like represents the existential success of the company, they, they will all lag your ability to actually be relevant in software, which basically is the scarier side of internet speed if it starts to work against you. Yeah. And on that happy note, <laughs> so, so do please talk about speed and feel free to Make it a, a, an easy conversation that everyone can contribute to because it really, really matters in our opinion. And, and I'm very open to pushback on this as well. Uh, I know the obvious pushback to speed will be something about what about quality. I think quality and speed are like not either or for starters. I think people often will question whether or not uh, you can have speed and quality. I, I think w- w- the only thing I'd say there is like if you ship shit, like actual relentless amounts of buggy stuff, it will slow you down very quickly because your roadmap will be faced with a choice of like, do we fix the stuff to, to keep the customers or keep the NPS or maintain customer satisfaction? Or do we lose all our customers and keep our like output cadence high? And I think those companies, once you're faced with that choice, you, you generally tend to sacrifice one feeder. So I think quality has to be a kind of a, a core assumption here, like that you're not going to like sacrifice quality. It's about assuming you hit your minimum standard of quality are you moving as fast as you can in terms of making the right decisions, et cetera? Any thoughts on, on that side of it? Yeah, I think I think the art of, of the questions you ask are really important. We've touched in this podcast, but the cultural component's really, really important, especially from the leadership team, that people feel that you're open enough and they're open you know, for them to feel comfortable kind of giving you the, the truth. But the, the questions you ask matter and the framing of them matters. So for example, you know, I think a, a bad question to ask is something like, we need to move faster. 
how are we going to do that? Whereas a better, that's like a, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute, move faster. Like, whoa, whoa, I'm already working 10 hours a day, you know, versus like, hey, what are the things that most slow us down? Yeah. Let's figure that out. What are, what are they? What's getting in the way? And that's a way more open-ended conversation. It's like, okay, now we've like asked a whole bunch of people and it's clear that like this thing here is slowing us all down and none of it, no one wants the thing from leadership to like the whole, no one. All right, let's get rid of it. Let's figure out a different thing. Yeah, getting those questions right to zone, zone in on like where is the areas where we're doing undifferentiated, valueless work, and how do we maximize the amount of time we can spend doing the work that we all signed up for, is ultimately uh, worked about. Okay, we could keep going around in this in circles, and I suspect we'll probably end up revisiting it over the year. But for now, for twenty twenty two, we hope you have a, have had great roadmapping sessions, have great features specced up, and we will see you all again in four to six weeks. Is our current cadence? Uh, thank you. <laughs> so. Thank you very much, Paul, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. This is Intercom on Product.